Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the LSE. Um, welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy and Standpoint Collaboration. It's a di standpoint dialogue. Now, some of you, probably quite a few of you, will know about Forum for European Philosophy dialogues. They come in various shapes and sizes these days. It, originally, the dialogue would be between usually some rather elderly academic coming towards the end of their career and would be interviewed by somebody who would invite them to run through their career and intellectual development. Um, it then became clear that another interesting variation would be to have two people talking about somebody who was dead already. So we started that, that form. Um, and then we diverted right out of people and had dialogues where you'd have two people talking about a great idea rather than a great person. And then recently, a great book rather than a great idea or a great person. And then even more recently, still a great question rather than a great book or a great idea or a great person. With Standpoint, our idea is that we'll have one further dimension to this with people talking about a great event and the significance of an event. Now, the, the event that we're looking at here, the event that uh, some writers on this quite often will put hyphens between, so fall of the Berlin Wall, as, as it were, the name of an event, which we perhaps think we know what it means and what it was, what it stands for for us too well. But nevertheless, there it is, this event, fall of the Berlin Wall. And uh, we'll be looking at its significance for us 20 years on. But back in 1994, so only five years after the event, I was struck by a passage in a book written then um, by a, a French thinker, uh, Jacques Derrida, who said, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, which he hyphenated, or from the end of communism, which he also hyphenated, the parliamentary democracies of the capitalist Western world, which he also hyphenated, would find themselves without a principal enemy. The effects of this would be countless. The subject in question, that is the parliamentary democracies of the capitalist Western world, would be looking for new enmities. It would seek to pose itself, to find repose through opposing itself to new adversaries or still identifiable adversaries. China, Islam, question mark, 1994, Enemies without which it would lose its political being would become purely and simply depoliticized. This event, fall of the Berlin Wall, however it's been seen, was clearly a momentous event. And it's perhaps surprising that we're already 20 years on. And tonight I'm delighted to invite two people to talk about this with us. Uh, Nick Cohen, author of Waiting for the Etonians, and Daniel Johnson, who's editor of Standpoint, and with me have put this together. They'll talk for as long as it takes, but hopefully not beyond an hour, and then we'll have further time to take questions and contributions from, from you. And I think, are there microphones in the audience? There will be. Okay, so you, you wait for the microphone, and uh, I'll come back and... Um, manage that, that part of the event with you. But for now, I'm going to hand over to Daniel, who will um, 
start the ball rolling then on the, on the dialogue part of this. Okay, thanks very much, Daniel. Thanks very much, Simon. Well, uh, it's very good to be back here. And uh, thank you all for coming. I gather it's just the beginning of the term, so I'm not sure uh, what you're expecting. But, um, but look, um, first of all, I'm just going to very briefly mention, since I am the editor of Standpoint, uh, the magazine, which any of you who want will, will have a free copy of as you leave. Um, actually, a, you're, you're rather privileged because it isn't the latest issue, the May issue, isn't yet in the shops, but, uh, but you'll get a copy of that tonight. Um, now, Nick Cohen, who's sitting next to me, uh, is our very distinguished TV columnist, among our, many other claims to fame. Um, uh, and in this particular issue, he also has written uh, a very trenchant, typically um, Nickian, uh, uh, polemic uh, arising from the... Um, the, the, uh, the scandals that now surround Downing Street. And uh, so uh, if, if you're a real um, connoisseur of, as it were, or Orwellian uh, satire and, and uh, ridicule, then um, I think you'll enjoy, uh, you'll enjoy Nick's piece about Mr. Brown. Um, and there's a great deal more besides in the Mac, so uh, I hope you'll all enjoy it. Um, now, and by the way, I should also mention, because I'm sure he will, uh, that Nick's book, uh, his new book, uh, Waiting for the Etonians, is also going to be on sale at the end uh, for uh, those of you who haven't already got a copy. I'm sure very few of you. Uh, but, uh, but Nick is, is perhaps even better known for his last book, uh, What's Left. Uh, and I think our discussion today is going to focus, to some extent at least, on what the fall of the Berlin Wall has meant for the left. Uh, it meant a great deal more than that, um, uh, but, but it certainly has meant a real break in the history of left-wing politics. Um, so um, I'm going to hand over right now to Nick, but I want to put down a little mark that there is a special reason why um, I, I was very delighted to be asked to talk about the Berlin Wall, simply because I was there, and I even played a very small part. I had a little footnote, if you like, uh, in the story of how the wall came down. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell that story in a minute. Um, uh, but first, I want to turn to Nick uh, and ask you, Nick, what did it mean for you, and what does it mean now, 20 years after? Um, at the time, I was pleased, uh, but <clears throat> like a lot of other people on the left, it was it was a rather strange thing because you you gradually realised that the people in Eastern Europe who were celebrating and pouring through, you hadn't done much for. Uh, I had gone on. I wasn't pro-Soviet, but I had gone on CND marches in the eighties, um, and. Obviously, there were, there, there were communists on the marches. There was a lot of East uh, Soviet bloc infiltration off the, off the peace movement. But obviously, I wasn't a part of that, nor was anyone I knew. And I didn't really notice at the time how uh, the, the criticism was all directed at Britain and America. There was very little about what was happening in Eastern Europe. Um, and it, it was quite a sobering experience, I think, for a lot of people. 
when they found uh, East European dissidents rather like us, so to speak, uh, in, in music they listened to, in the novels they read, um, uh, in their sort of 60s style, were not really, uh, didn't really regard us uh, as allies, and, 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 and for good reason. I mean, now it means far more to me because it's, it's quite clear uh, that the fall of the Berlin Wall marks the end of socialism as uh, a project, in, in, in a feasible project in society. In fact, it, in fact, it couldn't, the Berlin Wall would not have fallen if uh, the communist elite had not already realised that socialism was over. It was not going to work. I mean, it, it never would let it happen. I mean, most, it, it, is, it is the most extraordinary end to a conflict in history because, you know, a terrible conflict divides the continent. Nuclear missiles pointed at each other. Um, uh, uh, tank regiments ready to roll across the German plain ends with no one being hurt, with, with no great war. And that's because it, the communist leader in the Soviet bloc, not in the Chinese bloc, interestingly, in the Soviet bloc, uh, are, uh, have their confidence undermined in what they're doing so much that they think, all right, the game's over, you know, uh, and say, we don't want to carry on with this, which is, uh, I don't think that uh, there's still lots of arguments about what led to it, and people both on the left and right get very confused. American conservatives are very fond of saying, well, it's Reagan's arms build up. But then Reagan is a far stranger and more complicated figure than both his opponents supporters given credit for. But the real, the, the real, the big historical question is the left, which is defined by socialism from the 1880s onwards. By the early 1980s, wherever you look, uh, say in China, where uh, Deng Xiaoping is embracing market reforms and freeing tens of millions, hundreds of millions from poverty, um, uh, to, uh, to Europe, its old heartland, everywhere the old idea of the left as a transformative project, uh, a new, uh, socialism as a new type of society, uh, not, not just incremental reform, it just vanishes. Um, uh, whereas you know, 10 years earlier, nine, 10 years earlier, 20 years earlier, in the end of the 60s, it, that all seems to be reviving again. Um, so it, it's one of, these, one of these huge events in history uh, where, and I still think 20 years on, we haven't uh, re really uh, fought through or come to terms with the uh, consequences. Yes, I, I very much agree with that. Um, let me tell you just briefly my, my story. Um, a couple of days before November the 9th, I was in London. I woke up in the middle of the night. I was then a foreign correspondent for the Daily Telegraph and had been in Germany for several years in the 80s. I'd watched the extraordinary changes that were happening then, which still most people, including most people in Germany, had not noticed. And I'd already written that I thought Germany would be reunited much sooner than most people expected. And that was completely poo-pooed and ridiculed uh, in about 1987, this would have been. Um, that was the time, of course, when Reagan came to the wall and uh, called on Gorbachev to tear down this wall. Well, I woke up in the night and I thought, I should be in Berlin. I know what is going to happen. And I got on the plane and I went to the press conference that night, 
November the, the 9th, given by the East Berlin party boss, Gunter Schabowski. Um, it was a very boring press conference about the central committee of the Communist Party uh, that had been having a meeting that day, and we were almost dozing off. This was all televised, mind you. Um, this was what passed in, in, um, in the GDR for entertaining television. And uh, so we were being given all the various sort of resolutions and things. And then at, um, let me see, uh, 6.54 p.m., an Italian journalist, Ricardo Ehrman, asked Jabowski about the new travel law. Now, there's been much speculation about whether, why he asked that question and, you know, whether something prompted this. But it was actually a very obvious, reasonable question to ask. Shabowski announced that the Politburo had just decided to permit East Germans to leave the DDR. Visas would be issued without delay. Another journalist asked when this new law would come into effect. Sofort unverzüglich, uh, replied Shabowski. Now, he wasn't meant to say that. This was actually a huge mistake um, because the idea had been that uh, yes, indeed, people would be allowed to travel, but, but with visas and in an orderly, proper German way. Ordnung muss sein. But Schabowski jumped the gun. Uh, he said immediately. And there was commotion in the room. People realized something had happened. But no one had yet mentioned the Berlin Wall. Nobody quite knew what this meant. And at that moment, I got the microphone, and it was now 6.58 p.m., and it, so I asked my question. I asked the first most obvious thing that came to mind, which was, Herr Schabowski, was wird mit der Berliner Mauer jetzt geschehen? This was the first time anyone had mentioned the war. And you've got to remember that, you know, millions of East Germans were watching by now, they were really sitting up and taking notice. And Schabowski looked completely nonplussed. He announced, first of all, this is the last question. Uh, this is the end of the press conference after this. He wasn't having any more of this nonsense. Um, then he repeated the question. Um, then he said, the porosity of the wall uh, from our side does not yet and exclusively resolve the question of the meaning of the for, this, how shall I say, fortified state uh, border of the DDR. So he was already, in a sense, in a rather sort of grotesque, um, sort of Heideggerian sense, talking about the meaning of the war. Um, the problem was he had no answer to the question because there was no answer. He waffled about peace and disarmament. He talked a bit about um, uh, how it was now incumbent upon NATO to do this or that. But he had no answer to the question, what is the wall for now that you're allowing people to come through? Then he sat down and uh, announced that uh, we could all leave. It was now 7 o'clock. This all happened in two minutes. Um, at that point, all hell broke loose. And... Uh, um, I don't mean out on the streets. That took another hour or two for people to start appearing um, 
en masse uh, to come and find out for themselves. But the fascinating thing is that no one, but no one in the Politburo had actually given any orders to the border guards. Nobody knew that they were changing the policy. And in fact, later that evening, the entire Politburo went to bed. They just, they just had an early night. They went off to their fortified compound outside the center of, of the city and went to bed. So when at about nine o'clock, um, large numbers of people were approaching the checkpoints and demanding to be allowed through on both sides of the wall, uh, the poor border guards and their commanders had a simple choice. Either they shot them or they let them through. Now, there had been much talk in East, East Berlin, I can tell you, earlier in that autumn, about what they called the Chinese solution, which meant Tiananmen Square. And there were people in the Politburo who very much wanted a Chinese solution. And at one point, uh, when the big demonstrations were happening in Leipzig, they'd even prepared all the, uh, the troops, uh, even the ambulances, to take away the dead and dying. Uh, they were prepared to shoot. But at the last minute, the whole thing was aborted. And uh, from then on, uh, Honecker fell. And uh, basically, as Nick says, uh, the leadership lost heart. They lost, they no longer had the stomach to defend what they saw as this creation of socialism on German soil, the first socialist state on German soil. That was how they always described it. So, well, we know what happened after that. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people crossed the wall that night. And over in Warsaw, here's another sort of piquant aspect of this. Over in Warsaw, Chancellor Kohl was having dinner with uh, the new Polish Prime Minister, Mazowiecki, the first non-communist Prime Minister since the war. Um, and uh, at a certain point, his, um, his aide, Ackerman, uh, called up. Uh, they didn't have mobile phones, of course, uh, so he was called away. And uh, Ackerman said, um, uh, Chancellor, uh, they're coming through the wall. He said, oh, don't be so silly. You're pulling my leg now. It's ridiculous. Um, and he said, no, no, I'm watching it now. It's on television. Um, and uh, Cole uh, then apparently replied, unfassbar, incomprehensible. Now, you could argue that we're still trying to comprehend what actually happened that night. Um, it was an extraordinary event. And already myths have grown up. I was just reading today a very brilliant American philosopher called Susan Nyman. Uh, excellent book, I strongly recommend. Uh, a real voice of reason on the left, I may say. A book called Moral Clarity. Um, trying to explain why uh, moral language, vocabulary, um, and thought has been monopolized by the right, uh, in her view, uh, during the Bush years and so on. And she wants to sort of wrest this all back for Obama and his side of the argument. Um, but anyway, just in the course of her book, I came across the phrase, of course, in 1989, uh, the East Germans um, poured champagne all over their grey streets. Well, I can tell you, I was there. They didn't have champagne. Um, when I went out on the street, these students came rushing up, people just about like your age, came rushing up and said, you asked that question, you were on the television. They all came and hugged me and they said, come and have, come and have some wine with us. What they had was homemade 
really disgusting wine. You know, they, didn't, they couldn't buy wine in the shops, let alone champagne. Um, they couldn't even buy West German Zecht. So Susan, who actually teaches at, at the Einstein Forum in Potsdam, really ought to know better. But there we are. Um, there are much bigger myths than that uh, about uh, what happened uh, on that night well, and, and I, since then. I but what do you think? I, no, I think, ladies um, and we should start an, a new myth here tonight about the killer question. Far better than anything Jeremy Paxman ever asked. So brought down the Berlin Wall. Well, you're very kind. But um, uh, jokingly, at the time, Tim Gartenash did did write a column saying, um, "Who brought it down? Was it Gorbachev or Reagan or whatever?" No, no, no. It was my friend Daniel. Um, but no, seriously. I mean, it wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have happened if Nick hadn't been right that um, something quite profound. I almost would go so far as to say metaphysical um, had changed, um, so that this wall, literally at that moment, lost its meaning, lost its, became something else. I always like to think that was the moment, seven o'clock that night, when the Cold War ended and the Iron Curtain was lifted. Um, but but what did that? What does it mean now, twenty years after? Well, uh, sorry, sorry, Daniel, I, I, yeah. I, I wish I had your internationalism and, and, and cosmopolitanism. All I can really talk about is what it means for my, what it's meant for my tribe, my type of person, mm. essentially left middle class uh, or intelligentsia, let's say, in the Soviet days. In that, it's not. It doesn't strike me as uh, a, a, as particularly novel to say at a meeting in London, two thousand nine. Well. Socialism as a transformative project dies in the 1980s before the Berlin Wall comes down. What's very interesting and what uh, 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 hasn't had nearly enough attention and what fascinates me, partly because I sort of live through it, it's the story of my life, is what then happens next to the left? In lots of ways, lots of good things happen. Um, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of communism, is not in Europe followed by conservative governments elected everywhere. Uh, moderate left, social democratic governments free of the, the, the taint and uh, communism uh, uh, flourish. Uh, new Labour in Britain most obviously. Um, um, but what, 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 and they embrace or some of them embrace the best of the, the human rights tradition which, has, which, which, which develops in the 70s begins really in Helsinki and that has an important impact on on, on the Soviet bloc when we start when, when uh, Brezhnev and, uh, doesn't really know what he's doing no one really knows what's going on they sign these Helsinki Accords and start talking about rights and so the best of the left intelligentsia starts embracing universal human rights um, uh, uh, a sort of um, universal versus concept of, of liberalism but this is uh, this is this is um, by far, I was this, like, it's very difficult writing what I do because you, you keep talk, wanting to put uh, people in fixed categories. You talk about you know, mainstream liberalism on the one hand and the far left. They are far more fluid uh, than that. But ideas start building up on the left, or, uh, particularly in the postmodern media, of, um, well, we haven't got a socialist project anymore. That's been clear since from the early 80s. But that means uh, we can uh, reject uh, universal notions. Uh, we can reject not just universal human rights, but the universal emancipation of women 
and we can start, uh, uh, if not actually supporting, uh, but then making excuses for going along with denying the right to criticise uh, any movement uh, uh, or religion or culture which is anti-Western. That starts becoming uh, an idea associated with liberal left-wing thinking. Um, uh, uh, it is, and this taps into obviously the growth of radical Islam, but it also taps into uh, anything really that uh, 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 the protection of uh, cultures or defence of cultures or people who say they represent cultures or ideas that are anti-liberal. You see, I, mean, I was listening to Monsieur Derrida, uh, uh, the quote that was given at the beginning of it, and sort of, as so often with postmodern French philosophy, everything about it is wrong. It's, you know, he's saying that capitalist society, well, we don't live in a capitalist society. No European country is capitalist. 40% of our money is spent by the state that is not capitalism or anything like it. Uh, higher, uh, well actually probably is higher high here now than it is in the rest of Europe. Um, but, uh, and capitalist society is looking for an enemy. It's, it, that's the wrong way around. Liberal ideas, universalist, uh, emancipatory ideas, uh, don't have to look for enemies. Enemies come looking uh, uh, for them and, 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 and always have. And in a funny way, um, I'm rather, for all the appalling crimes of communism, which I'm not beginning to support, uh, I preferred uh, the days when people took socialism seriously and argued for it, in that at least they were making a commitment, and at least they were stating a position, and at least coming, coming up for putting forward an argument. Um, it is... We now have this very woozy, uh, undefined, ill-defined sort of liberal leftism uh, that anyone can join without making commitments, uh, ideological commitments. You can be, you know, um, uh, the chief presenter of Channel 4 News on an enormous salary. You can be uh, 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 quite the richest people I know, very, very rich people. I go to their homes and I see um, uh, Naomi Klein and Michael Moore and John Pilger on their bookshelves. And that's because th th there is this great fuzziness that means that the left isn't really a threat to wealthy people quite uh, uh, um, anymore. Uh, the example I always give is if I were addressing a meeting at the LSC in 1909, and I, may have, and I was a socialist, I may have been con I'm talking about one issue, I'm picking an issue, say prison reform. Uh, I may make an impassioned plea for prison reform and everyone in the room, uh, everyone on the platform would agree with me. But because I was a socialist, I would have to fit it into a larger framework and move on and say that I also believe in a complete transformation of society, the abolition of private property, blah, blah, blah. And then, if not you, Daniel, um, then other people in this room might start disagreeing with me. Now, to be left-wing, I think, well, that's not for me. That's not for me. Now to be left-wing is, is to just have uh, uh, an opposition to, uh, a vague, well, strong opposition to certainly America or the West or, or whatever you want to call it, but with none of the commitments to go with it. And the real tragedy that flows from all of this, to go back to the notion of universal liberal rights, is what then happens to people in the poor world? What then happens to the traditional uh, comrades, to use a 
20th century words, to the traditional comrades of the left. What happens to Iranian feminists, to Kurdish socialists, to Iraqi Democrats, to uh, secular Muslims in, in the British ghettos, to uh, um, uh, um, tribes being massacred in Sudan, to um, uh, people in Burma living on military junta, to Chinese trade unionists who would like to start building free trade, classic thing to do in industrialization, building free trade unions in China. They, can, they will turn to people in Europe who call themselves leftists or feminists or socialists or even liberals and find an awful lot of people will not support them, uh, will not be interested in them, will not actually be on the side of those oppressing them, will not want to talk about them. It's not what motivates them anymore. And it sounds a grotesque thing to say, frankly, when we're talking about communism, one of the worst ideologies ever devised by humanity. But in the non-communist world, in the, in the wider non-communist left, why, while socialism existed, you did have, it's, God knows it committed, made enormous mistakes and was, went along with enormous crimes. The best side of it was this internationalism, was this solidarity. Uh, and, uh, and that seems to me to have been threatened by the whole postmodern movement. The, you know, uh, uh, Derrida uh, didn't, uh, but Foucault, when he realises that, uh, that socialism is over, instantly goes, right, what's next? What can I get onto? Rather than going along with Western liberalism, he embraces the Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, uh, embraces the, the revolution in Iran, even though about the first thing Khomeini does is round up tens of thousands of Iranian leftists and kill and torture and imprison them, you suddenly get uh, French postmodern intellectuals sort of cheering on because he, you know, any enemy of America is better than no enemy, enemy of America. Mm -hmm. uh, even, if, even if that enemy doesn't pretend in the way that communists used to pretend to share the goals and values of the old left. Even if that, the first thing that enemy does is kill leftists for very good reasons. Um, uh, that, that, um, I'm sorry if I sound like a bit of, a, a bit of an old communist on this, but that, that, that to me seems, seems to be a loss, and that's what I write uh, against as much as I can. Mm -hmm. You, you, you've put your finger, I think, on a number of the characteristic weaknesses or delusions, or to use a cruder word, lies, that are distinctive about the left. The right has its own self-delusions and, and, and lies as well. I'd like to get to those. Uh, we will get to those. Uh, but, but let's just think about the left for the moment. Um, I mean, leaving aside the fact that almost from the very beginning, if you can say the beginning was the French Revolution, that's where we get the concepts of left and right from, um, the left made a series of extremely bad calls, I would say. You know, it was always on the side of, uh, as it were, collectivism against individualism, of uh, equality rather than liberty, of uh, it, it, it opposed what it decided to call capitalism at the very moment when that was the great liberating force in the world that was lifting people out of poverty and creating unprecedented wealth. It decided to, uh, to back uh, a grubby coup d'etat uh, in St. Petersburg 
1917, which led to untold suffering and catastrophe for the whole human race. At least 100 million people died as a result of communism, and it's still happening. Um, so there's a long list of charges to be laid against the left. Um, George Orwell, who I mentioned earlier, was very good at this, wasn't he? Uh, you know, as, as an old leftist himself, he knew better than most uh, about those lies. Um, and we're, we're still, I think, laboring under some of them. I mean, you, you only have to, as you say, open a copy of The Guardian or walk into a bookshop like the Economist bookshop there, find it full of delusions and uh, self-deceptions about the reality of life under socialism. Uh, and there are very good reasons. It isn't just because, you know, people like Brezhnev or Stalin or whatever were bad people that this was, a, this was an evil system. It was, it was bad structurally. It was bound to be bad. It was bound to concentrate too much power in the hands of too few people. Uh, it was never going to work economically. Uh, it was bound to impoverish people, uh, and so on and so on. Um, now, what I really wanted to get to um, yes, was, well, uh, that's just for starters, yeah. Nick. Um, uh, and, you know, I speak as someone who grew up on the left. You know, I was, I was canvassing with Frank Field for the Labour Party at the age of of uh, six or seven, uh, you know, in 1966 when he was the youngest Labour candidate. I played chess with Michael Foote. Uh, you know, I played war games with Richard Crossman. All that stuff. Okay, so I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm part of, I'm part of, part of the, the, the left myself by origin. But, but, um, I, my, my interest in the left did not survive, could not have survived. Uh, being immersed uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, understanding uh, not just the, the physical destruction that was wrought, uh, not just the oppression, but it's the spiritual vacuum that it left behind, and which I think we are still living with. Um, you only have to look at Russia itself to see the, 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 the wreckage, if you the intellectual and moral wreckage left behind by uh, 70 years of Bolshevism. Um, uh, Putin and uh, all his works uh, are completely a product. But Putin, by the way, was there that night as well uh, on the 9th of November. Sorry, it's just another footnote. Uh, he was in Germany as a KGB operative, uh, and his job immediately was to start shredding the documents uh, and uh, prevent anybody discovering the real truth about what he and his friends have been up to. And, of course, he's gone on doing that uh, in, as, as president and prime minister. Uh, the truth is that in Russia itself, there is still no real acknowledgement of what went wrong. There is still no real acknowledgement. There is still the pretense that it was all a great project uh, for high, high ideals and principles uh, which was just uh, badly put into practice. Um, well, this is the idea which I think died that night. Uh, I don't think if you are on the left, you can, as it were, put Humpty Dumpty back together again. You know, that's finished. You have to start a new project. Now, Nick quite rightly 
talked about uh, the threat now of radical Islam. Uh, and that is not the only threat, but it is a very important threat. Uh, and it's a direct threat to the left, as he rightly said. It's a threat to enlightenment values, to Western civilization, which the best of the left have always been among the most eloquent spokesmen. And this is the thing that distresses me most about what has happened in the last 20 years, is that people with whom I would disagree politically, but who I felt intellectually and morally, I was absolutely at one. My friends on the left, many of them now, uh, I no longer feel that because they have become enemies of the West. They have become uh, not just enemies of uh, capitalism or of uh, you know, uh, bourgeois individualism or something. Uh, they, they, they are against the very fundamental basic principles of the West because they are allied with uh, this new form of fascism uh, which is uh, extremely powerful now even here in Europe let alone in the Muslim world and uh, it seems to me that is a very important battle that now has to be fought Right, uh, well, you're my editor so I'll be gentle with you uh, uh, On the last point, obviously I agree Look, it is completely hopeless the sort of projection of the left has also supported from the French Revolution onwards. You have no sense of the, of the movements in history. On the first dance of the National Assembly in, in 1789, in August 1789, is to abolish slavery. Conservatives at the time uh, opposed them. In the 19th century, radicals in Britain started talking about votes for men, votes for all men. Uh, conservatives at the time opposed them. Uh, they then started talking about restrictions on capitalism, restrictions on the use of child labour. Um, uh, 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 in eight-hour days, conservatives at the time opposed them. Um, they then moved on to, like Orwell, who you quoted, to be quite strongly against imperialism. Uh, Orwell was not just against communism. He was against all forms of tyranny, including fascism and imperialism, conservatives at the time opposed them. Uh, now, you see, conservatism uh, moves. Uh, conservatism succeeds, actually, by taking the best of uh, the previous generation of the left. I mean, you will, and people like you, uh, will succeed and will win, and I hope you do win, if you fully embrace the equality of women, no nonsense about it, if you fully embrace uh, opposition to racism, again, no, no nonsense or no, no snide sneakers behind the hands, and fully embrace homosexual equality. That was the, that was the best of the, of the post-68 left-wing generation. Um, uh, second, why, what is it that you find so, well, you and I both find so objectionable about what passes for liberal thought today? What is so objective about it is it is not remotely liberal. Um, I, uh, 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 you talked about, Lord knows the French Revolution had enormous crimes, but the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was universalist. Um, the trouble with people who call themselves left-wing today or people who call themselves liberal, or as I say, it's very difficult. I was talking with a fellow author, I just read a manuscript of his book, today, uh, Anthony Julius, who's done a stunning study of anti-Semitism in the modern world. 
And I said to Nancy, it's very, very hard thing to pin down. This, I come up with liberal left, I can't think of a better term for it. But this woozy mass of opinion that squats on this country like some toad uh, in, in, in publishing, in the universities, in the BBC, um, uh, uh, what is it that's so objectionable about them? Now, to use rather old-fashioned terminology, which you might not like, I mean, what gets me about them is they're so bloody right-wing. You know, it, it, it was it, postmodernism is an entirely reactionary idea. Uh, in the Enlightenment, um, it was not just conservative philosophers, interesting, important conservative philosophers like Burke. Uh, uh, I said, when you, I, was, I was thinking when you were announcing the left, you know, you, you, you were all Burke and no pain. You should be able to appreciate both of them. But the, the ultra-reaction uh, against the Enlightenment, uh, which begins the origins of fascism in Europe, the, the, uh, they were the people who started saying, but what are these rights of man? I, I know Frenchmen. I know Italians. I know Polish men. I know English men. But this creature man does not exist. Everyone is determined by their place, by their locality, and uh, does not have uh, uh, universal rights. Now that was, uh, and it's, you know, obviously there is a grain of truth in that, there's a grain of truth in everything, but that was the, 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 the reaction against the environment. Now you hear that preached on every university campus. Now when uh, people who write to me and say, um, you know, uh, uh, I want to stand up for the rights of women in Afghanistan, not to have their schools burnt down, their teachers shot for the crime, crime of teaching girls to, to, to read and write. Their left-wing friends are very uneasy with that. Um, uh, there's a wonderful... Uh, you must know Af Afsar Nafisi, who wrote mm -hmm. Reading Elise in Tehran. It's a, it's a great book. Uh, I, I really recommend it to you. Uh, Af Afsar was a, 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 an academic in Tehran University, living under the Ayatollahs. And she said, you know, for an intelligent woman, like, that's like living with men who've raped you. Uh, and the only escape she found was to go back with her women friends and they'd read the classics of, of literature in, in the privacy of her flat and talk about them and see their lives through them and find escape. Anyway, Nafisi finally gets out of Iran and goes to uh, Harvard in Massachusetts. And... Um, she, uh, uh, she thinks she's going to find in America, where she, you know, she notices that in the university, you know, a, 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 a rather over-lusty compliment to a woman can result in all kinds of procedures, and they all seem to be against sexism and racism. She thinks, well, okay, this is fine. There will be a huge movement on American campuses to defend women's rights uh, in Iran. And she finds nothing. And she, uh, she finally asks a colleague, well, why, not? why are you not remotely concerned? about the appalling oppression of women which is going on in a great swathe across Africa and Asia, uh, yeah, misogynally, misogynally armed and in power. And, uh, and this academic, this is in Harvard, Massachusetts, where, of course, uh, you will remember uh, the Salem witch trials were in the crucible set. And the academic turns to but it's their culture to oppress women. And the few suggested, they said, it used to be your culture in Massachusetts to burn witches. Change the culture. You know, if someone wanted to burn the witch now in Boston, you know, the police would come. You know, and they wouldn't throw more faggots on the fire. And, and that, is, that is, now perhaps, you might tell me, uh, and lots of people do tell me, Nick, you, know, you are clinging on to uh, a romantic notion of the left, just as you put the worst of it, I am putting the best of it. 
But we are in a very bizarre time, which, uh, when uh, you have a fascistic clerical movement, uh, and the paper, and if I was to produce a newspaper anywhere in Europe, and ask you for any country, and ask you to guess, I present you with a movement which is anti-American, but is also wants to oppress women, kill the gays, kill the Jews, uh, kill any Muslim who, of his or her own free will, decides to change their religion, or uh, decide they have no, no religion at all, which wants to abolish democracy, which wants an inquisition, um, and ask you to guess this article was sort of making excuses for this movement. What newspaper is that from? You would say about that. I think that's obviously a liberal or left-wing newspaper, not a conservative one. Whereas in the 30s, if you know, I, I was to show you articles supporting appeasement, overwhelmingly they would have been newspapers of the right. Now, well, it would have been. It would have been. It would have been Dawson's Times. Uh, uh, whereas Michael Foote on the Standard was opposing. Conservatives were more likely to appease it. I know I've written about it. There were plenty when war came, plenty on the left flipped over. There's never been a golden age on the left. I'm simply saying the incongruity of our times is striking. Where you know, if you 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 look at, uh, I work for the Guardian Media Group, so I'll pick the London Review of Books. You look at the London Review of Books, and you will see on on one page people calling themselves radicals or Marxists or feminists, on another uh, defences of extreme, I won't call them right ultra-reactionary uh, and murderous organisations. So, you know, um, uh, I, 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 you don't have to tell me how bad the left is, uh, particularly uh, what after I've been through the past few years, but um, <laughs> I know. Uh, but on the other hand... I would say that we are, in, in, for reasons you've, you've said, your question in Berlin in 1989, and you know, the events you were at, produced something which is, however much you want to say, well, look, Nick, you can find anti-Semitism on the left all the time, or there were plenty of people on the left who uh, would rather uh, support Hitler than support their own country in the Second World War and all of that. Kind of there is something very, very strange about our time which comes from that death, which you were a witness at, uh, uh, comes from that death of socialism, where anything goes as long as it's anti-Western. Um, uh, and, and as I said earlier, uh, to me the worst of it is the lack of support for uh, people in the poor world or... You know, the notion that rights for women are all very well for white-skinned women in Hoban, but not for brown-skinned women in Tehran, or, get a bit more local, are all very well for white-skinned women in, in Hoban, but not for brown-skinned women in Bethnal Green and Berg. And the idea that that can be a left-wing fault, uh, it, to me, is profoundly shocking. But maybe it is. Maybe that's what the left is in the 21st century. But if it's going to be that, we ought to... Look, you, but those of us who come from the left ought to at least give it a good uh, run for its money. Mm. Well, uh, where to begin? Um, I'm not going to try and defend the right. Why the bloody hell should I? Um, they've been responsible for just as many evils in the world as the left. But, um, just on points of fact, um, it was under Disraeli that the suffrage was extended and the first vote of 
for uh, women's suffrage took place. He supported it. So did a lot of conservatives, but not enough, uh, and it was defeated. Um, it was John Stuart Mill, of course, who put it forward. But what I'm trying to say is that there have always actually been uh, people on the centre-right who supported specific liberal progressive sort of measures. Uh, and and I, I do beg to differ with you about the 30s. I think the left then was relentlessly pacifist, uh, almost to a man. I mean, you mentioned Foote, but he was a bit of an exception. Um, most of them didn't want rearmament. They didn't want... They, and, 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 and for heaven's sake, you know, the Hitler-Stalin pact uh, was a terrible, terrible monstrosity. Um, uh, I, I, some of you may have read the memoirs of uh, uh, Elizabeth Buber Neumann, uh, the woman who was, uh, you know, a leftist who was first arrested uh, by Stalin, then handed over to Hitler uh, by Stalin's uh, NKVD. Uh, and had to endure concentration camps on both sides of that divide, and there were many others like her. Um, so, but, um, I mean, we can talk till the cows come home about the pathologies of both left and right. Uh, what we're dealing with here now, though, it seems to me, is something that is unique to the left, something to do with, uh, if you like, the loss of an enemy, um, uh, the loss of a cause. Mm. Um, above all, I think the loss of a proletariat. Mm. Uh, there isn't any longer, at least in the eyes of most uh, of your LRB reading or Guardian reading um, liberals, uh, a working class out there to whom they can appeal as a sort of um, arbiter. Uh, in fact, they rather despise and, and hate the, the working class, at least certainly the white working class. Uh, they do regard... Uh, Muslims as a kind of potential hmm. uh, proletariat. Well, I mean, uh, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you look, Daniel, if you look from Marx in in, uh, in the 1850s and 60s, where all this hope is invested in in the white working class, in the working class, as you called it then, you can gradually see uh, middle class leftism as as moving away from Britain moving out of Britain to compensate for the disappointment that the proletariat do not do as they told. They do not rise up and overthrow capitalism. They don't um, you know, uh, em you know, embrace the arts or, or do all the other things that they're meant to do. They don't listen to their betters. And then you suddenly you see this development going from the Russian Revolution onwards of substitute working classes, of people projecting their disappointments and embracing... Uh, revolutions in other parts of the world. I, mean, I guess it'd be Cuba in the uh, in the sixties. That's the last one to. Well, I mean, the Cultural Revolution, disgustingly, had uh, people on the left in in Europe who uh, got uh, uh, excited about it. Uh, and you can see that. You can see that uh, in 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 now the uh, going along with if not absolute radical Islam if not Al-Qaeda then the Muslim Brotherhood and Jamaati Islami however I think my point still stands that something is lost that when you say with Islam you know there are in Bangladesh where Jamaati Islami uh, Jamaati Islami is Maldudi's party from Bangladesh and Pakistan they are regarded by if you like the Guardian readers of Bangladesh as like the BNP, only a thousand times worse. 
they are extreme an anti-national party that collaborated with, with Pakistan and the atrocities that uh, were in, in Pakistan's war to try to stop Pakistan becoming independent. They were absolutely wiped out, thankfully, at the last election. Yes, in Britain, Ken Livingstone, left-wing journalists, uh, absolutely uh, uh, take them as, and the Muslim Brotherhood as the voice of Islam. And in so doing, to return to my point, they turn their backs on people in the Muslim world who, for want of a better word, and I accept there are huge problems with terminology, you can call left-wing, or people in the Muslim world who used to, for good reasons, used to be the official concerns of the left, for whom movements like Jamaat uh, and the Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban are their sworn enemies. So they're still, I think it's stranger and, 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 and perhaps more, more, more degraded than you realise, Daniel. Because, because, you know, it's not Islam they are, they, they are embracing. They are embracing the violent uh, reaction, if you don't like, variants of it, and ignoring the fact that the first victims of those violent movements will be... The original purpose of those violent movements is to oppress and deny aspirations to other Muslims. Why aren't they on side of other Muslims? And that, that, that's when you start that's when you start realising the full darkness uh, of, of of left-wing intellectual life at the moment. When you start splitting it up a bit and say, "But hold on a second, look, if you want people to support, why don't you support your friends? Why do you support your friends' enemies or go along with them? Why don't you take a stand on?" On, be on the side of traditional allies of the left, and once you ask that question, uh, you do get into very into well, what actually does it mean to be left wing today? If you can't do that, what's happened? The uh, uh, you mentioned earlier um, imperialism and anti-imperialism as a great cause, traditional cause of the left, and so it was and is. Um, I wonder, Nick, how you deal with the problem, though, that imperialism, uh, at least in its British variant, uh, was very largely motivated by a desire to bring the benefits of Western civilization to the rest of the world. Yes, it was also motivated by making a profit and uh, by power and greed and all those other, other things, too. But there was an idealistic... Uh, aspect to it too, which is why it was so supported actually by liberals mm -hmm. for most of uh, the 19th and, and oh, yeah. early 20th century. Now, when you look around the world today and you see the contrast uh, between, let us say, India, which uh, still does have, uh, I think, that aspiration. It still wants to be part of uh, if you like that post-enlightenment family of nations, uh, the rule of law, democracy, and so on, mm. um, and countries that uh, uh, that that, uh, that didn't uh, live under uh, British rule for as long as that, um, you do see the difference. And I do wonder whether the left isn't going to have to rethink some of its assumptions about the evils of imperialism, because what we've seen in the last 20 years, to a very great extent, has been a kind of um, reluctant conversion to a kind of neo-imperialism. Uh, I mean, what were Tony Blair's wars, uh, if not a kind of return to that uh, sort of uh, high Victorian 
um, white man's burden kind of view of the world. Um, uh, obviously, put in the language of human rights and democracy and so on, but nonetheless, essentially, uh, going to uh, countries like Afghanistan or Iraq uh, and trying, uh, successfully or unsuccessfully, uh, to export those, uh, those ideals. Now, I mean, I'm sure when we come to questions, you know, there are going to be a lot of different views about, about the rights and wrongs of that. But um, for those of us who support those, uh, that, who supported um, what Blair was trying to do, uh, and would probably still do it again, in spite of what we now know, which was not then known. Um, there, is a, there is a question which goes to the very heart of this, um, which is to do with moral relativism and cultural relativism and what you talked about. Because only when a civilization is confident about its own values, its own principles, uh, can it credibly and effectively um, spread those to parts of the world which lack them. Um, if a society go, turns in on itself, uh, denounces its, its very, the very heart of its culture, its traditions, its, its principles, if it, uh, particularly in the universities, this is why I'm raising this point, because I think here in the LSE we're absolutely at the heart of this, um, if the intellectual elite of the society, which later becomes the political elite, uh, gives itself over to an extreme form of relativism in which nothing is absolute, nothing is better than anything else, uh, and your own culture is right at the bottom of the, of, of, of the pile, uh, it seems to me you, you're, you'd be mad to then embark on the kind of adventures that America and Britain well, well, uh, have done in the last yeah, in the last yeah. ten years. Um, uh, you know, you you would better look to yourself uh, because uh, it does seem to me that Europe, especially, and America perhaps is not far behind, uh, is deeply, deeply, uh, as it were, riven. And uh, it's not just on the left, but uh, because I think some of the the ideas we've talked about. Uh, have now spread much more widely than that sort of narrow intellectual class. Uh, these are ideas you now find everywhere uh, in society. Uh, you find them in the saloon bar, you find them in the classroom, you find them everywhere. And uh, I wonder whether a person like you, Nick, who still holds those high ideals of what the left is supposed to stand for, um, whether you're prepared to face up to the the full extent of this betrayal? Well, um, uh, well, I do my bit, um, but look, look, um, look, uh, two points, these are not debating points. If you want an utter demolition of postmodernism in universities, among university academics, turn to other academics. I mean, it is not quite, you know, this, this, this world, this, I'm not saying you, Daniel, sort of sophisticated thing for yourself, but many on the, on the conservative side see the universities of, of, of dens of iniquity and whatever, you know, you will not find a more devastating destruction of Monsieur Derrida than Alain Sotal's hoax. Uh, you will not find um, 
uh, a stronger opponent of relativism than uh, Simon Blackburn. You will not. You know, there are there are books. Uh, I've just been. Uh, uh, I've just read a proof of a wonderful book that's coming out by uh, Ophelia Benson and Jeremy Stangroom of the Philosopher's Magazine. Uh, their, their butterflies and wheels site is, is one of the wonders of the age. I've never known someone as consistently furious as Ophelia. Uh, 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 and to do it so well, I mean, you know, does God hate women? But most of it, Ophelia is a, is a, is, is a feminist, highly intellectual feminist. Most of it is attack on uh, pseudo-feminists in the postmodern academy who go along with and make excuses for uh, the oppression of women, the sexual degradation of women, it's their culture, what you know, it's imperialist to criticise. So you know, it is not as bleak as you as you point out um, to begin with. Uh, but Nick, there, are, there is a problem on the campuses, isn't there? Oh yeah. I mean, we see this every time certain kinds of speakers come to uh, uh, to come to speak. Now, come on, uh, S Simon wants it's wants terrible. to give the audience uh, the their academic share. Returns. You've sat here listening very patiently. <laughs> and politely, rather to my surprise, uh, uh, to us two. Uh, so now let's have some questions. Okay, now we do have some time. We've got uh, some microphones, and um, we'll just go as, we, as I see them. If you could try to keep the two questions rather than extended contributions, if you can, and if you do want to make a point, please try to keep it brief. And I will just ask you to stop if you, do, if you fail to do so. So we'll start over there. I just um, felt there was a slight imbalance in the way you looked at the fall of the Berlin Wall because um, you very much looked at the implications for the left, but actually there were quite a lot of implications for the right as well because conservatism from Burke onwards was often defined by, uh, was quite a negative philosophy, that's to say it was often defined by what it opposed rather than what it supported. And in the 80s, conservatives had a lot of clear bete noirs. They had the Soviet Union, they had the IRA, they had Neil Kinnock, they had Arthur Scargill. Um, and perhaps now they're only left with the EU, really, which is why the Conservative Party obsessed about that for so long. And in many ways, um, conservatism in the 80s was defined by anti-communism. So once communism fell, conservatism as an ideological project became a lot less clear. And today, many of those um, who are called conservatives are really much more uh, liberals. And there are very few places you can really go now, apart from perhaps the columns of people like Simon Heffer and Roger Scruton, uh, you know, wonderful prose but bad politics, um, for a clear philosophical take on conservatism. So I was just wondering if you could explore the implications of uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall for, for the right as well okay. as the left. Brilliant. Okay, well, we'll take another couple of questions as we're going, if people can keep it brief. One down here. Um, I, I don't um, disagree, Nick, with uh, your uh, quick uh, uh, sort of thumbnail history of the origins of the human universal rights tradition, uh, which, uh, which, which is uh, uh, clearly your central credo more than perhaps being of the left or the right. It was perhaps of the liberal left. Um, for reasons that you describe very eloquently, under the siege by postmodernism, cultural studies, post-imperialism, um, and this rather frightening sort of liberal fascism, in, in, particularly in American Ivy League universities, which I think is very largely to account for um, for this uh, uh, th this intellectual development. It, it would seem to me, in the last 20, 30 years, the universal rights uh, which fortify you 
uh, are now mostly embodied and articulated by parties which describe themselves as right of centre, particularly in, particularly in Europe. Um, if what really matters to you uh, is a set of beliefs of which rights are at the core and dignity of the individual rather than labels of left or right, isn't it best just to give up on the left project altogether um, and um, join the right? Thank you. And uh, we'll take one more before we throw it back to them. Uh, it's here. And then we'll take these two next. Why is the left failing so badly at the moment when the ground for it is so fertile with the collapse of capitalism? Um, I mean, just why is it just? I mean, we've got a situation where, uh, thanks to um, the banksters, as, as one of the professors here calls them. Um, basically, the bottom billion in the world are suffering uh, extraordinarily through no fault of their own, and the left is failing to exploit this. There's an interesting piece, and let's finish with this, by Gideon Rachman in the FT today, talking about the end of the Thatcherite consensus. I mean, this basically should be the moment for the left. And Where we're is about it? To elect a Tory government. Sorry? And we're about to elect a Tory government. Exactly. Never underestimate well, the British sense of humour. <laughs> well, I, we're about to throw out every incumbent government, whether left or right. Look, that okay, is, let's, let's, yeah. let's take them that, all now. That, that is a terribly important point because we're talking about 1989. Now, I don't want to compare what's happened in the past year with the fall of communism. I mean, that is, that is ludicrous. But it does seem to me that we have come, there's a distinct historical period, perhaps I'm being too grandiose, to the, that night in Berlin when Daniel's there in the autumn of <clears throat> 1989 to the collapse of Lehman Brothers in the autumn of 2008. And uh, it seems to me that, uh, although I insist that we are not a capitalist society, it's ludicrous demagoguery to say we're a capitalist society, um, uh, 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 nor is any other European or North American country. Um, the, 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 if you like, the dreams of the free marketeers not, there's plenty of things markets are, are good at and are fine at and ways they can be extended, but the idea that after what's happened to the banking system, <coughs> that it, it can be a sort of right-wing version of the universal theories of Marxism, you know, all you have to do is press these buttons, have this society, and then everything will be fine. Uh, that's gone. Um, uh, I'll let, I, I thought we ought to have made that point earlier on. I'll let, Dan, uh, I'll, I'll let Daniel come back on that. But Could you we, actually uh, just slightly elaborate on that thought that they, there aren't capitalist societies? Because I think a lot of people would think that, that you, you might say that these are, um, there are varieties of capitalism and, well, no, and we, that we, we, we have existed. We, we, we're a mixed economy. Right. Um, and, and so we were a capitalist society briefly in the 1840s and 1850s, and it was so ghastly, everyone, including conservatives, said we don't want any more of that, we want to start regulating. We want to start regulating the treatment of children, the treatment of working hours, and in a funny way, the Conservative Party was keener on doing that than the Liberals who, who still stuck with P-Lite <coughs> beliefs in the market at all costs, although Gladstone begins to get uneasy on that. You know, a true capitalist society uh, just, 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 just doesn't exist. Um, uh, and, and it's used, you know, by Derrida and others, because what they mean is wicked. You know, when they say capitalists, they mean bad, evil. Uh, uh, if they were to say French democracy with its mixed economy, uh, with its welfare state, uh, and the right to vote is wicked, it would be a lot harder for them. <laughs> Do you want to take some of the questions? 
Well, uh, yeah. Um, was the fall of the wall more, more of a problem for the right, really, than for the left, uh, because it took away the enemy? Um, well, uh, in a sense, that's true. Um, though we didn't have to wait very long, did we, to find some more enemies coming along very fast. In fact, some of these same old enemies, uh, I mentioned Mr. Putin, um, uh, are still around. Um, but uh, it doesn't seem to me that uh, conservatives have quite the same uh, requirement, if you like, to develop uh, an elaborate theoretical uh, Discourse. I mean, they're, they're, they're eminently practical people. That's, that's what they're supposed to believe in. And they are there to defend tradition and the status quo. Uh, so, uh, no, I don't think it has been as difficult for them. I mean, it's true that, it's very true that, um, the, uh, the Cold War, um, which, as I said, I think did come to an end that night, though, you know, we're still, I mean, there's a very interesting book about the new Cold War by Ed Lucas, uh, which makes a very good case for saying it hasn't ended at all. It was just a sort of lull. Um, but uh, if we assume that it did come to an end, the whole point about the Cold War, as I understand it, is that it was actually an alliance on our side of uh, the more enlightened figures on the left, uh, the Orwells, as it were, uh, and the more enlightened people on the right, so not the extreme uh, ultra-conservatives, you know, the sort of Pat Buchanan types, uh, but, uh, uh, but what one might call the, the, the neoconservatives, who were, who were all, to a man, uh, originally liberals, uh, and, and in important senses still always remained liberals. Um, it, these are, the, these are the, the cold warriors, um, the people who really opposed uh, communism. Um, and uh, what has happened, I think, is that the end of the, the Cold War has broken up that alliance um, and now we're having to reform new, new alliances, find new friends um, and there are, there are new battlegrounds. I mean one of the main battlegrounds it seems to me here in Britain uh, is now Israel. Israel has become a sort of uh, talisman. Um, it, it has a significance far beyond that of a small Middle Eastern state. Uh, it, it divides opinion uh, across the country around dinner tables and so on, in a way that uh, uh, I can't think of anything else that has. Um, America does too, it must be said, although less so now that Obama is there. Um, and uh, it seems to me that's, that's where we have to look now. Um, so perhaps the old left-right uh, terminology, I know it's a cliche to say this, but, uh, but actually perhaps it isn't very helpful anymore. Uh, very often what matters now is, uh, is whose side are you on? Vic? Uh, well, um, yes, uh, every generation has said the old divisions are breaking down. Uh, and that's partly because, uh, 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 as I mentioned earlier, and this is perhaps the answer to, uh, uh, to, your, to your point, sir, you know, the next Conservative government will be far more social democratic in its regulation of the banking system than the Labour government was, because the Labour government is brought up in this period. Uh, between the end of the Cold War and, and, and the crash. I mean, now, you know, George Osborne is coming out with ideas saying, well, you know, 
we want a Glass-Steagall Act, and Britain Labour says no, but Osborne's saying, well, you know, th th this is what Roosevelt introduces into the press, which essentially says the high street banks must just be boring banks, they can't go into the casinos. He's talking about breaking up banks, he, you know, all kinds of things. And the shock for Labour ministers who took the post-1980 assessment, I don't think I'm betraying confidence in telling you this story. Um, I, I, I've become quite friendly with Alistair Darling because, frankly, I think anyone who takes up over the Treasury after Gordon Brown, whoever it is, George Osborne, Vince Cable, you just need to hug them, buy them drinks, give them a shoulder cry, and keep them away from sharp implements. And, uh, anyway, I was, um, I, was, I was invited to a party that Maggie Darling threw for journalists on in Levin Downing Street. Uh, and it was on the night where the, the bankers were going to Darling and saying, we're all going to collapse so, yeah, autumn of last year, unless you do something. In fact, we'll all be bust by uh, tomorrow. So what was one thing another? Darling is um, away from his party quite a time. It's this cold, blustery night, and wind howling outside, and all of us standing there sipping our wines, wondering where's the, where's the host. And finally, Alistair turns up, and he comes over to me and a colleague of mine, and, he, and I said, uh, hello, Chancellor, been busy. And he said, Nick... My entire political career, people have been telling me to stop being so left-wing, move to the right, move to the centre. Think about what a middle-class, middle-aged couple in Kettering want and give it to them. Now they want me to nationalise the bloody banks. <laughs> and it's just, they never, ever expected to be in a position like that. They never, in some ways, that, that's disorientated them, and, and it stopped them. Daniel here can go on for hours. He'll keep you here till tomorrow morning on all the problems of the left. And I would agree with him. The one thing you'd think you'd be able to do is regulate the banks. <laughs> you know, I'm brought up in a left-wing family, in left-wing tradition. You are taught about 1929 and the Great Depression at your mother's knee. And those who didn't come from left-wing families... Uh, uh, they were all Marxists at university. That, that may have been their problem, incidentally, because, you know, you can, you know when virgins fall, they fall hard, and you know, they can switch over to the other side very easily. But, you know, they ought to have known that, you know, you ought to have been wary of the banks instead of just abasing themselves before the city, not regulating properly, and they are going to be punished for it, absolutely punished for it, uh, and deservedly so, anyway. Okay, let's move on. We've got one down here and then one there uh, and one there. We'll, go, we'll take three if they can keep it short. Yes. Uh, Nick, I wanted to ask, uh, you, just after your book came out, or about a year after your book came out, David Mamet wrote a playwright, wrote a famous piece, now famous piece, called Why I'm No Longer a Braindead Liberal. Mm -hmm. And it caused quite a, a, big, a big deal in, in America. He wasn't talking about the, or framing it in, in terms of the fall of the Berlin Wall or whatever. Um, but he just, just simply um, made the point that, for him, it was quite simple, that he couldn't be left-wing anymore if, on the one hand, he had to keep in his head the idea that people were basically good people, and yet, on the other hand, why was everything, as he put it, so bad all the time, that he had to be so angry all the time? Um, could you comment on that? Well, I, it sort of answers a question that Daniel raised earlier. Um, I start off... I, don't mean to advertise, but I've got a couple of books on sale outside. I start off what's left, a very personal thing about my family, but the essential idea is, is, is that not that people are good, but people on the left are good. Even if they're wrong, it would be better that they were right. So, for instance, even if it was wrong to argue for unilateral nuclear disarmament 
in the 1980s, it would have been better if the world had been that way and if you did unilaterally disarm, everyone else would, uh, would unilaterally disarm. And in your field of culture, I think, it's those of goodness. So you know, Daniel's saying the left has a lot of accounting to do after the fall of the Berlin Wall. But apart, apart from a couple of brilliant books on the Stasi, uh, there has been very little accounting. You know, there's been no great... Uh, uh, um, BBC is not running documentaries on Radio 4, who are the people who went along with all of this, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, that's because people on the left are assumed to be uh, good. And this notion of, of the essential goodness of the left, uh, I think, I don't know if it's got to Mammoth. I did read his essay, but I, uh, I think he's talking about something else. But, you know, he's talking about, if we assume that human, in a rather Rousseauian sense, humans are, are born good, then how can I explain uh, the world? Uh, it does have a stultifying effect on culture in Britain. I know, and admire, and I, you do a lot of modern playwrights, but they do feel they have to do political plays for a cause, which are often terrible plays. Um, uh, uh, partly because they don't have an idea of complexity. You know, they can never, you know, never portray, David Hare could never uh, successfully portray a Blairite. He just couldn't do it. Uh, and he didn't in his last play. He had to rely on, rely on newspaper politics. But, you know, it, so there's that. But, but to go back, how far do conservatives really believe um, in original sin and um, uh, there's nothing you can do with the crooked timber of humanity. Uh, I wonder if you do really believe it because I, 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 I read Daniel and uh, the pieces he prints always with, with great interest and admiration and I see vast plans for social engineering to um, give people a lot of money to make them get married and uh, it's, it is a rather, uh, a rather capitalist response, you know, I mean, uh, <laughs> darling, darling, my accountant says we should get married, oh, I've, my accountant says the same thing. <laughs> well, you know, David Cameron wants to do that and, uh, you know, it is not, uh, I don't, I don't think the notion that human beings are, 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 are always the same is a great dividing line uh, between left and right. There, there, there is plenty of, and certainly from Cameron, there is plenty of social engineering coming if he has any money, which he probably won't. <laughs> can I, we'll take another if we can at the back there. Yes, we last met each other 26 years ago, I think. Um, and when we did, well, no, 27 actually. Um, when we did, uh, I took the view that the uh, hard left, or the, what we used to call the loony left, the good old days, was basically all about support for the IRA and anti-Semitism veiled as anti-Zionism and never thought the left really did a lot of good to anyone. Um, I know you were a sort of notional tribal follower of it, but what you said about the support for various um, human rights causes and the like suggests to me that the left really ought to collapse its tents and go home, is what you're really saying, because what you very smart, I thought very eloquently put it as a description of the right which is basically nicking all the left's good ideas of the previous generation uh, sort of leaves the left with nowhere to go and, and the tribalism is probably what's done all the damage that in your, certainly your previous book uh, you made so much of. Uh, certainly I think if, if the left in the 21st century uh, cannot uh, oppose 
far-right-wing movements, if it cannot support universal human rights, if it cannot particularly stand up for the rights of women. The great revolution and the enduring revolution of the 20th century was the emancipation of women. It will be the great revolution of the 21st. In some ways, all these sort of stinking fundamentalisms that are raging all around the world, they're really about stopping women uh, uh, enjoying, enjoying, enjoying for life. Now, if the left can't oppose that, I want no part of it. It will not be a left worth having. All I'm trying to argue for, and perhaps call me a cockeyed optimist and silly old romantic, is that it ought to be... You know, say what you like about the left, we are bloody good nags. We really do, couldn't go on and on and on and on, like when it's Nelson Mandela in South Africa, or whatever. We can be nags in good causes. And that kind of puritanism, uh, that kind of, uh, of, of tediousness, that kind of unrelenting, unrelenting banging away until finally people take notice, that ought to be being done for oppressed people in the poor world. And we are quite good at that, uh, and that we're not doing it. Uh, you know, I'm going to keep pointing this out, so at some point I'll probably just give up. But, I mean, you know, that, is, that strikes me as something that's worth hammering away at. And as Matthew, as Daniel, sorry, will, will no doubt tell you, there are plenty of people on the right, uh, Daniel's enemies on the right, who, who, you know, who, who, are, who are doing the same thing. But if you give me a left-wing audience and give me an hour with them, I can at least make them feel very uncomfortable. Whereas an audience of paleo-conservatives and, I don't know, Douglas Hurd types and people like that, from conservative, on the conservative side of the thing, might just struggle and say, well, why should we care? You know, there is something there is something very odd and very wrong going on at the moment that is worth pointing out. But if it is not sorted out, uh, you see, Daniel was Daniel, Daniel was talking about sorry, very quickly, people in Eastern Europe who were far keener on talking to people like him than I guess you know typical left wing intellectuals say, what is going to happen in the Muslim world sooner or later? The classic people who, who in the previous generation would have been left wing are going to start realising that white Westerners who call themselves left-wing are, if not their enemies, at least most certainly not their friends. Okay, we're going to keep going with questions. Can I, can I just, just quickly, because I haven't yeah. said anything for a long time, um, <laughs> uh, just, uh, it's quite difficult with Nick, you know. Um, uh, just wanted to second your point about the moral, I'm sorry, let's be blunt about this, the smugness of the left, um, this assumption of moral superiority, it is insufferable and it's very, very bad for them. It's not so bad, actually, for, for the right, but it is, it is disastrously bad for the left. Um, but the other point, I just wanted to throw in an anecdote. Uh, a couple of years ago, I went to a fantastic conference in Prague of dissidents from all over the world, almost literally every country, uh, a lot of them uh, from the old Eastern Bloc. Um, it had been organized by Václav Havel and Natan Sharansky, uh, and uh, two, two great dissidents of the past. And uh, now, which left-wing politicians do you suppose uh, condescended uh, to pay a visit to this, this conference? Well, none, absolutely none. But George Bush came. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, my point's actually just been touched on by Daniel Johnson. Um, Nick, I find your analysis of the modern left brilliant, but I'm not convinced that this only began 20 years ago. Um, I think the, the notion that it was until then 
obviously committed to a universal notion of human rights, and that was a, a, a massive influence. You, you just need to look at the, sure. the Webb's view of the Soviet Union in the 20s, sure. the way the left supported Castro and Guevara sure. and the North Vietnamese and opposed sure. trade unionism in so, Poland. So, 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 we're running out of time. I just make a point quite quickly. I mean, uh, you can buy my books on Sarah at such an outrageously low price, I wonder how my publisher will, <coughs> can survive. <coughs> the point I'm making is, in the 20th century, people on the left went along with an excuse or turned a blind eye to, when it came to totalitarianism, left-wing movements, communism. Uh, I'm not defending that at all. What I'm saying is bizarre about our time is partly because there is no communism, partly because there are no Che Guevara's, you know? There are no Cuban revolutions. There, nowhere in the world outside maybe uh, Nepal, parts of India, are there Marxist insurgency groups. So instead of turning to universal human rights, the rights of women, which God knows are difficult enough to enforce and support, it's not these are hardly trivial little demands, they will go along with, you know, as I said earlier, any, any enemy of the West is better than none. We will go along with movements which in classic leftist terminology are fascistic or communalist or sectarian, which is always the bottom of the heap in the traditional left's view of the world. You know, these are always the worst. Uh, that's my point. I'm not trying to give some golden age of the left and say there's marvellous people doing marvellous things. I think that it is a sign of, of, the, of the, uh, the violence of our times, really, that this is happening. And that no one, you know, on the radio, you never hear an interviewer say to Tariq Ali or people like that or George Galloway or Ken Livingstone or all kinds of people, you never hear them say, but you're meant to be left-wing. What earth do you think you're doing with groups like this? Now, <coughs> I still insist on there is something, something has changed, and that change, Daniel's there, and that change begins, and it is uniquely hypocritical. Uh, and it is, it, most importantly of all, to keep returning to this point, we are rich and privileged people <coughs> in a rich and privileged country even though someone's going to lose our income, lose some incomes, whatever, you know. Um, we ought to be helping those who don't have the rights we have, not helping their oppressors. Thanks, Nick. We've got time for just one more. Uh, if you can keep it brief, please. Uh, according to Donald Sassoon, the left has made the most gains when capitalism has been most successful. Mm. Um, Britain, yeah. the, the, there's been a progressive dealignment uh, from, from the main parties in Britain. Now, what I'd like to ask you is, will the end of new labor also be the end of labor? Well, if you look at the two, recession, the two great recessions of the 20th century, the first is, and the 70s, 80s, labor splits. It both splits in 1931 and falls apart. It splits again in 1983. So the main task of labor will be just holding itself together. Um, uh, will it be the end of labor? I don't know. Uh, the one thing Labour's got going for it is the Liberal Democrats uh, have performed so weakly. The, the, the alternative to... There will always be a, a centre, whatever you define that. There will be an, an opposition to the Conservatives. Um, but I don't think Labour's going to fall apart this time. But I do think if they keep Gordon Brown's leader, which it looks like they're going to, they're going to go down very, very big and very hard in May next year. Right. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for. And so it just leaves us to thank Nick and Daniel very much for an extremely interesting conversation. Thank you.
And don't forget that Nick's book is for sale.